0: William Wilberforce, you may be familiar with that name, William Wilberforce was elected to the English Parliament in 1780. Five years later, 1785, he converted to Christianity. John Wesley and others urged Wilberforce at that time to fight for the abolition of the slave trade in Parliament. In the last letter he wrote before his death, John Wesley says this to, writes this to young Wilberforce, said, Go in the name of God and in the power of his might, till even American slavery, the vilest that ever saw the sun, shall vanish away before it. Wilberforce's efforts, if you ever heard and read about his history, it took 20 years But he was willing in those 20 years to stand in the gap for all of those slaves. He was willing to plead their cause. So here's my question this morning to each one of us. Put yourself in in the position of those slaves. Put yourself in that position where you can do nothing, where you are basically helpless. You are powerless. Who is willing to stand in the gap, if you were in that position, who is willing to stand in the gap for you? Who is able to plead your cause? Near the very beginning of the Bible, around the time of Genesis, there was another man who asked that same question. During his time of greatest need, as he stood before God, absolutely helpless, absolutely powerless, he asked, to whom do I go? Who will plead my case? <laughs> I'm guessing you're familiar with that man's name. His name was Job. Remember his story, right? Um, one day he had everything, and the next day everything <laughs> was lost. And one of Job's great questions as you read through the book of Job Comes from Job chapter nine, and simply this: Could there be an arbitrator, an umpire between me and God, someone who could go be a go-between, who could lay hands on a hand on both God and on man? <laughs> now, to be honest, you continue reading the book of Job, and Job um, never gets much of an answer to his question from God. God doesn't seem to respond to his question at all. Um, And it's still one of those great questions that people are asking these days around the world. I mean, you go around the world and you can find people um, spinning prayer wheels. You can find people uh, cutting themselves and piercing their bodies and, and lighting candles before all sorts of different altars. And they're asking that question of Job. They're asking that question, Who can be the go-between between between God and man? That's a great question the writer of Hebrews tackles in the last part of chapter 4 and the first 10 verses in chapter 5. So I invite you to turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews, near the end of the New Testament, the book of Hebrews. Look with me, Hebrews chapter 4. We're going to start by looking at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14. This is what the writer says. He says, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. Um, That is our word, since there, okay? Catch that. If you haven't been with us, uh, we are in a um, short Four-week sermon series titled "Good Sense," not S-E-N-C-E, but S-I-N-C-E. Good sense, and we're looking at different passages out of Scripture that are connecting, uh, that use this word, this connecting word, "sense." Um, that word, "sense," what it does is it looks backwards to in time to a specific promise, or or truth, or um, or an idea. And it says, because this is true, then let's live this way. Since this is true, then let's live this way. So we have two questions then this morning. Well, number one, what is the truth that we're to hold on to? And then how should we live because of that truth? <laughs> okay, let's answer the first one. The truth is right here, very, very front. The truth is we have a great high priest, Of course, uh, to you and I, we don't hear um, much about high priests these days. I mean, when was the last time you looked in the Star Tribune and you read much about a high priest? My guess is never. Um, But you have to understand, to the Jews of that day, the one who this writer of Hebrews is writing to, the terms high priest and sacrifice and animals and, and blood and altars would have been as familiar to them as the terms that you find in baseball, single, double, triple, you know, are, are to us. Could there be an arbitrator, an umpire, that could put his hand both on God and man? Well, to the uh, Jews that day, the high priest came as close as you could possibly get. Why? Why? Well, the writer here wants to tell us three reasons why. Um, the first reason, you can find in chapter 5, verse 1. First reason, because the high priest was a person who represented the people before God. Look with me at verse 1. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. See, every high priest was appointed by God from among men. Um, He had a very clear job description, the high priest did. His calling was that he was to represent the people. And the point here was that he could do that because he himself was one of the people. I mean, he was a human. He was not superhuman. He was was one of them. So when someone would come up to him and and talk to him about uh, family problems, the high priest um, he knew what they were talking about. Or when someone would come on and, and say to him, uh, listen, I'm having a problem in my marriage. He didn't say, what? I mean, what's that like? <laughs> no. Um, the high priest, he knew what it was like. He had his own marriage tensions. He was from among the people. Now, I, some of this is paralleled um, in your pastors here, I mean, you, you recognize your pastors, Pastor Jason, Pastor Paul, Pastor Jay, myself. I mean, we're all um, just like you. <laughs> um, yes, God has called us, but we are, you know, one of you were among the men, uh, among the people. Um, um, some of you wonder sometimes, do pastors wear blue jeans? Right here, okay? You can see it. You know, do do pastors uh, really uh, clean their own bathrooms in their homes? Yes, double yes. (laughs) Uh, Sometimes people make a comment to me, say, you know, I I know you've never really faced this temptation, but, and I want to say to them, are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? I mean, I I know some of you might think that my wife, Becky, uh, you know, when I walk in the door, calls me reverend. You know, but I got to tell you, it's not true. (laughs) I wish it might, but no, it's not true. Um, Likewise, see, you got to understand, the high priests, they were normal human beings just like everyone else. Second, the high priest was someone who offered gifts and sacrifices. Look again with me at verse one, the last half. He says, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. That's what the high priest's role was. There are two things they were required to do for the people. The first one is they were to offer gifts to God. That is, gifts of praise. That is, they are to say thank you to God. We give praise to God. Sunday mornings in worship, we give praise to God. Second, the high priest was required to offer sacrifices for sins. Um, these were sacrifices of atonement. Um, they were bloody. They involved killing lambs or bulls or doves. They were symbols of uh, expiation, a a dealing with or taking away of of sin. Offering gifts and offering sacrifices for the people was something. See, the high priests, that was what they were to do. The third thing we need to know about the high priests was that um, the high priests understood his own weaknesses. Uh, Look with me at verse 2. Look what he says here, 5 Chapter five, verse two. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Um, There's two types of sins that that the writer here refers to. Um, There's the sin of ignorance. Um, uh, These are are, uh, people, um, sins that people commit. They they don't know the law. They they didn't know that they were sinning. They they were ignorant, Uh, um, unaware. And then there's the sin of of going astray. People who had drifted, they knew the law, but, <laughs> you know, they had wandered. They, they, they hadn't followed the law. They weren't obedient. And by gentle persuasion and reasoning, the high priest uh, was to bring them back. The high priest was to deal gently with people uh, who would come to him. I love that idea, don't you? Here it is. That's the high priest was to do. They were to be gentle. All of us are called by God to deal with each other gently. When we correct someone, we're to do it gently. When we argue from scriptures uh, uh, with someone who is wandering and try to correct their understanding we are to do it gently because God's not a tyrant. The high priest was to be gentle. Why? (laughs) It tells us there because he understood. He knew his own weaknesses. Is there anyone out there that can be an arbitrator, an umpire, a go-between that can put his hand both on God and man? The high priest could uh, sort of. But there was a problem, see? Look with me at what he says the problem is. Verse 3. Because of, it, because of this, that is his own weaknesses, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins just as he does for those of the people. Um, the earthly priest was a sinner, was a failure. <laughs> like everyone else, he fell short. So he had to offer sacrifice. Sacrifices for himself. And sometimes I'm sitting down with a young couple, you know, before their marriage and their premarital counseling, and um, you know, I can see that they're intensely in love. You know, they just are loving each other. They just love each other. And I ask him, "Okay, so what are you going to do about forgiveness in your marriage?" Um, I ask him, "Uh, "Do you realize that that person sitting across you is a failure?" (laughs) <laughs> you see you understand when, when they're going together and they're engaged they're ready to be married I mean everything seems to be just perfect right um, you don't see the other person when they're sick or when they're, they're, they're miserable or when they're going through tough times and frustrated at work and then they marry <laughs> and they see the sins of the other person and so I look at the young woman, and I, I, I ask, you realize this guy you're marrying, that he's a real failer, don't you? <laughs> I mean, I don't, I don't mean that he fails deliberately. I just mean that this guy has a memory, you know, like mine, and <laughs> he's going to fail. And I tell the guy that, that, that she's going to fail as well. And so then we begin talking about, well, how, how are you going to work through this in your marriage? See, you and I, we always come up short. That's the human priest. He was an arbitrator, an umpire, a go-between, but listen, he fell short. (laughs) But then there arose in the land of Judea, in the city of David, an arbitrator, an umpire, a go-between, who is Christ, the Lord. And he would put his hand on the people, and he would put his hand on God. See, Jesus was a superior high priest, the writer tells us. What makes him superior? Well, he tells us here. Look with me. First of all, Jesus was God-selected. Look with me at verse um, uh, verse 4 and 5. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, who said to him, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. See, not just anybody can walk in off the street and decide to take on the role of being a high priest, God has to call you. God has to select you. God has to qualify you. And God did that for his son. That's why the writer here quotes from Psalm 2 there at the very beginning. He says, but was appointed by him who said to him, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. (laughs) Jesus was one who was selected by his father. It was while Jesus was being baptized by, uh, that God the Father told him, you are my son whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. It was while Jesus was standing on that mount of transfiguration that a voice spoke from the clouds saying, this is my son whom I love. Listen to him. He was the son. Jesus was the son that God had selected. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, an arbitrator, and umpire, a go-between that could put his hand both on the people and on God. Alexandria Flynn of Fremont, Nebraska, was looking forward to her homecoming dance. Um, she, She left home in high spirits, but she did not have her high school ID with her. When the man at the door refused her admission without uh, her idea, ID while well, she quickly drove home and, uh, to get it. Unable to find it, though, um, her mother went back with her to the dance to identify her and to explain it to this man at, at the door. Uh, again, though, he refused admission to her without her ID. Alexandria had the tickets in her hand, <laughs> but she was not admitted. Even though Alexandria Flynn of Fremont High was the student body president, even though she played cello in the Allstate Orchestra and was on the honor roll and was the school's number one cheerleader, and she had spent hours decorating the gym for the homecoming dance that very day, she was still not admitted. (laughs) And oh, did I mention? She was also the homecoming queen. (laughs) But she never did get in. In a similar way, it's a great mistake when someone decides uh, to appoint themselves as their own high priest, and they hope that God will accept them on the basis of their accomplishments or or their good deeds. There's no way that they can offer sacrifices for their own sins. Someday they'll get to heaven and God will ask them, um, so why, why should I let you into my heaven and they'll say, well, I've taken care of my sins. And God will say, insufficient, not good enough, doesn't count. Without Jesus Christ, listen, we have no ID. <laughs> He's the only one who is sufficient enough to deal with our sins. He was God-selected. Not only was God, Jesus God-selected, but he was also God-perfected. Look with me at verses 7 isn't that interesting? When I first read that, I thought, that couldn't be right. A person must have wrote, wrote that wrong, must have been translated wrong. Something's wrong here. Because I've always been taught that Jesus was perfect um, from the very beginning, right? But see, that word perfect there means to be complete. You can be perfectly moral, but not complete. Maturity is maturity. <laughs> the only way to have experience is through experience, even if you're God. So Jesus learned obedience and learned to be totally complete by suffering. I mean, we know how that works, don't we? Uh, we say, listen, if, a, if a man never, uh, has to suffer, he becomes spoiled. And we talk about children being spoiled, don't we? Um, and... and they become spoiled because they've never learned obedience. Never suffered, never went through pain or had a broken spirit. A child can learn obedience when he's told to eat a candy bar, but it's another thing to learn obedience when you're told to, learn, to, to clean your room. <laughs> a soldier can learn obedience by being told to march in a grand parade in his uniform but another, it's a, quite another thing to learn obedience by being told to uh, go to Afghanistan and patrol there in Kabul. So Jesus Christ, catch this, commanded by the Father, following the Father's will, was made totally complete by suffering and going through the pain. Already perfectly wise, now he becomes perfectly experienced. Already perfectly holy, He now becomes perfectly aware of everything that we go through and how it feels. And so he became complete through suffering. And because he did that, it says there in verse 9, that salvation is offered. Once he became complete, he became the source of eternal salvation for each of us who obey him. Is there an arbitrator an umpire, a go-between that can put his hand both on God and us? Yes. Praise the Lord. And he is Jesus Christ who is both God-selected and God-perfected. But I want you to see a third quality here. Look back with me at our since statement back in verse 14. Chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through The heavens. That's an interesting statement, don't you think? Jesus has gone through the heavens. You say, well, what's that mean? Well, it means that he is with God. Jesus not only passed into the heavens, but he passed through the heavens. See, when we put a couple of astronauts into a rocket and hurl them into space, we are throwing them into the heavens. They're still within the space-time um, continuum. But the claim made here for Jesus is that he passed through the heavens, right? He passed outside the limits of time and space. He no longer is contained within, limited by those boundaries that hold us in the physical limits. He is outside, above, and beyond, and overall. Jesus Christ, unlike any other high priest that ever lived and died, he lived and died and rose from the dead and walked right into the holy of holies, into the very presence of God. He passed through the heavens and he walked right into the presence of Father and he sat down at his right hand and folded his hands and said, there, that finishes it. And on that day, he became our go-between. On that day, he died. The curtain that shielded the holy of holies um, from everyone for centuries was ripped right open. A new way was opened. And now we have access into God's presence through Jesus Christ, who has become our go between Is there an arbitrator, an umpire, a go-between that can touch both God and man? Yes, yes, and he is Jesus Christ, fully God, fully man. And he's sitting right now in the very presence of God the Father. But of course, if if you're like me, you, you can begin to wonder, can that type of person really relate to me? I mean, what does a God-selected, God-perfected, throne-room-sitting person know about me? <laughs> It'd be like asking, "Hey, um, how can President Joe Biden, who only rides around in limousine uh, called Cadillac One, uh, nicknamed the, the Beast, now how can he know anything about what I'm going through?" A person who drives a 2008 Toyota Matrix. <laughs> What does he know about my condition? What does Jesus Christ, who sits on the heavenly throne room with the Father, know about what we are dealing with down here in South Minneapolis? here's one of the most profound truths, I think, in all of Scripture. It's found here. This great high priest is sympathetic to us. He understands. Look with me at verse 15. Look what he says here. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. He was tempted in every way, just like us. He understands. When you say, God, I don't know how to handle this pressure. I don't know how to stand up underneath this temptation. Jesus doesn't say, oh, no, I've got someone here I don't understand. He doesn't rub his forehead in, in worry when you talk to him about selfishness or, or about lust or, or, or pride or anger, or, or and, and he doesn't sit there and go, I wonder what I should do, what I should say. No, he's faced everything that we've faced, yet was without sin. He faced need and did not get bitter. He faced deserted uh, by his friends and kept on going. He was tested in morality, but he never flunked. He, he was offered the kingdom of this world, but... He turned it down so he could do his father's will. One minute, everyone around him was screaming, Hey, we love you. And the next minute, they turned on him and cried for him to be killed. They offered him a shortcut, but he chose obedience. He's touched by our frailties because he's experienced the pain and the struggle of temptation, experienced the tests of life. He knows what it's like to cry at night, to be all alone. Nobody understands, even your friends. And he sympathizes. He understands. He understands when you're hurting. He understands when your best friend dies, when your marriage is on the rocks, when you're being gossiped about. And when you tell him your weaknesses, your struggles, he says, I know what you mean. I can help. Come to me. And that answers that second question we asked at the very beginning. How should we live because of this truth since Jesus is our great high priest? How should we live? What's our response? Look with me at verse 16. Then let us with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. We can approach the throne of God with confidence. Not because of anything we've done, but because of our heavenly high priest. That's why Jesus taught us to pray our Father. That's why the Apostle Paul said that we can call him Abba, Daddy. <laughs> we can come boldly before the throne of grace. Yes, it's a throne. Um, with lightning bolts coming from the side and cherubim and seraphim over and above it and sparks of glory that would turn you away. But you and I, you and I are able to come closely through Jesus Christ, our heavenly high priest. And when you come close, what you'll discover is you'll discover it's a throne of grace. So here's my invitation to you this morning. Camp out on this truth that Jesus Christ is your heavenly high priest. Let that truth just sink in. Meditate on that truth and what it means. So when you're being tempted, when you're you're feeling that pressure, feeling like a failure, when you're in need, that you'll be able to say, yes, I'm going to go to to him with confidence and receive his mercy, receive his grace because you know that all he wants to do is to give to you. Again and again, come boldly, he says, bow your head at, at any moment, or, or maybe when you're driving, pray as you, as you drive and say, God, I love you and I need you today in my office. I, I, Father, could you help me with this next appointment? God, I'm sorry, I, I, I thought that. I, I, I know you didn't give in to those things, but I did, and I need you. And he says, I understand. Joel, I'll help you. Joel, I'll give you my grace. (laughs) One of the most moving passages in English literature comes towards the end of Charles Dickens' Tale of Two Cities. It's the story of a French Revolution. Each day, a grim procession of prisoners made its way to the streets of Paris to the guillotine. One prisoner, Sidney Carton, a brave man who had once lost his soul but had now found it again, was now giving his life for his friend. Beside him, there was a young girl. They had met before in the prison, and the girl had noticed the man's gentleness and courage. And so She said to him, if I ride with you, will you let me hold your hand? I'm not afraid, but I am a little weak and... It'll give me more courage. So they rode together, her hand in his, and when they reached the place of execution, there was no fear in her eyes. She looked up into that quiet, composed face of her courageous companion and said, I think you are sent to me by heaven. Friends, can I tell you, God the Father has sent to us God the Son, And he is our great high priest. So when you are in those dark valley of life, whenever you're in need, come to Jesus who is your God-selected, God-perfected, sympathetic (laughs) go-between. He's with you. He understands, and he will help. Let's pray. God, thank you for the promise, the promise that you give us here, that we can approach boldly that throne of grace, the throne of your heavenly Father. We can come with a sense of confidence because of what you have done, because not only do you know us, but God, who you are. And what you did on the cross for us, you're God selected, God perfected. You're the go between. We praise you for that reality, that truth this morning. In your son's precious name, amen.